From the citadel of dusk to the frozen heart of the northern wastes, we scour these lands for ancient tombs and stories untold. Within the great temple of Verena, we make our stand against the darkness that seeks to take the light of knowledge. We welcome one and all to our hallowed halls of enlightenment, in hopes you may glean some insight into our old world. Hello and welcome to Perils and Portents, a Warhammer Old World podcast. I'm Dave and I'll be your host for this episode and I am joined again by my co-hosts Jason and Patrick. Hey guys, what's up? What's happening? Happy to be back. Hey squad, what's going on? Yeah man, happy to be back for this second episode. Right. Super excited to be, you know, digging into fantasy some more. So... Well, we'll do again a small disclaimer, which is when um, we talk about Warhammer Fantasy, we're talking about the Warhammer Armies Project, which is the unofficial ninth edition of Warhammer. So if you guys have any questions about that, uh, you can go Google that and check that out. And be sure to check out our first episode where we do a little bit of a deep dive into uh, Warhammer's Army Project. But we're going to assume that you guys have already listened to episode one of Perils and Portents. And so we are going to go right out to Patrick. And Pat, what is on your table? Oh, so what is on my table? So I actually have a whole pile of stuff on my table right now. I just um, printed myself up a unit of Grail Knights. And they look absolutely amazing. They're the ones from, um, if you're looking around for Grail Knights, look at Raven Twin Miniatures. They have a Patreon, but they also they also sell just bundles of STLs. And so these are like some of the most detailed knight figures I've ever seen. So I'm excited to start painting those. But also um, through my Instagram, if any of you are followers, uh, you will have known I've, I've challenged myself for the for the month of July to actually get off my butt and finish this uh, Lord on Hippogriff. And so I'm working on that right now. I've got all of his feathering done. I've gone for like this browns into reds and like oranges and then got to work on the, the horse part and then uh, the actual Lord on top. So that's that's what's staring me in the face at the moment. Sweet. How many of those hippogriff guys go together? What do you mean? Is it just like one? It's just a lord on a hippogriff? Yeah, like, it's just or, a... Well, so I do have the lord on the hippogriff, but then I also have a full unit of hippogriff knights, which base come with uh, three knights. So... But yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're mighty nasty. As soon as you put a lord on a hippogriff, it's like, oh, wow, you essentially just have like two lords because the hippogriff can just like tear into a unit and maybe we'll talk about that in the next segment <laughs> sounds good man yeah jason what's on your table let's see 
uh, for me right now, uh, two separate things. Still uh, hard at work painting this little Grimgore Ironhide for Pat. And I also have about a dozen uh, third edition Chaos Dwarves. Uh, tiny, like, little weapons teams hanging out. Uh, these are really ancient um, little metal sculpts from 3rd edition, like back before Chaos Dwarves were even a army book to themselves. They were just kind of like a uh, little allied faction you could kind of take a few units for, uh, for the overall, like, Chaos Hordes army. And let's see, so I've got uh, two little swivel guns, which are kind of like, um, if you've ever seen the little shipboard cannons, like, uh, you know, that kind of sit on the prow of, like, you know, older ships before, uh, you know, the giant broadside cannonades became a thing. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, pretty similar. Got two of those guys. Uh, I've got two, probably my favorite, are the uh, little bazookas. Uh, those are terrific. Uh, honestly, it's just uh, a pair of little dwarves uh, with a Panzer Shrek. Um, it's the closest I can come to describing it. It's pretty terrific. Um, and oh, and then I've got one little uh, mortar team, which is terrific because it looks the mortar itself looks like an angry little goblin man, like making a big weird kissy face. It's just Every one of these models is the most horrifically hilarious, like, 80s games workshop thing you could possibly imagine. So and, a cocaine fever dream? Is that what we're getting at here? Oh, yeah. You just, like, mix together a little bit of, like, cocaine fever dream and a little bit of uh, Frank Frazetta. Like, that artwork all together, and that's pretty pretty much it. Oof. So it's white metal, man. So are there are there rules for all those guys, Jason? Uh, there are, actually. Um, I actually used a... Oh, yeah, uh, the game we just played, Dave, actually used a bazooka. Uh, <laughs> uh, that was the little uh, rocket pack that you were not a big fan of. Okay. Uh, I have not used a swivel gun yet, uh, but uh, yeah, they do have rules. Uh, the bazooka is the only one I've used in game, though, and uh, done pretty well so far. I'm a fan. So, like, when you used the bazooka against me, I thought it was like a war machine. So, technically, it's supposed to be a little weapon team. Uh, that was the smallest rocket launcher I could find <laughs> at the time. Okay. So wait, what? What's still? I mean, what are they? Just normal strength, toughness, chaos dwarves, or like, do they have some additional shenanigans? Oh yeah, it's just a, a little pair of like strength four, uh, toughness four chaos dwarves with a uh, bazooka. That's amazing. That's it's great. It's pretty great. I'll totally send you a picture. It, okay. They've got even got like the little. Uh, Oh gosh, what are the World War One German helmets called with the little spikes on top? I don't know what the name is, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah, as soon as you said it, like it just popped into my head of like right, just like a vision the little of Craig it. Marine helms. Yeah. Oh, totally got those too. It's pretty great. Mind you, this comes from the era where like space marines actually showed up in fantasy every once in a while. 
and you could take bolters and plasma guns as, <laughs> you know, uh, heroic special items. And That's right. <laughs> all sorts of other nonsense. Third edition was crazy. <laughs> it was. It was great. I can't remember if that's when I got into it, but I remember there was like um, a halfling hot pot that you could take. Um, oh, yeah. And I think it was just like, there was no halfling army, right? It was just part of the empire army. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's like think. a regiment of renown I thought that you could take. or Oh, maybe it was. Maybe it was. Um, but Dave, what's on your uh, hobby area or in your hobby area? So with the stuff I sent to um, my painter, uh, I sent a bunch of terrain. So I have always wanted to build up my, um, I guess, terrain, you know, um, hobby locker. And so I've, I've got uh, a lot of the terrain they started making in 8th edition, but then they've just kept going into Age of Sigmar. And it's, it's, I think it's wild, and I love it. It's very thematic. So um, the Hearthstone, the Dwarf, like the Forge, um, the Ogre, uh, what is it, like the little, like the, it's like a canvas tent. Yeah. And it's just like, a, it's like they're boiling some <laughs> stew in there, right? Did you get the new version of the... Uh... What is it? It's like the Solar Canum or like the the Wizard Tower thing. You know what I'm talking about? It's got like a skull on the rock and. No, I didn't get any of that stuff. No, I I wanted to try to keep it as much um, old world uh, compatible as possible. Um, not that that's not, but um, I just there's a few there are a few other things that I thought were closer to. Uh, closer to that uh, i love the herdstone um jason you've painted up one of those so yeah i've actually got one of them because uh, it's a magic item or arcane item okay so it has rules in oh WAP. yeah yeah really good rules <laughs> i so this just shows my ignorance right i don't i don't really uh, collect stuff because I, I know what the rules are. Um, does does most of the other terrain have rules, or is it is that like sort of a one off? Uh, well, that one's a little bit of a one off because it's a specific arcane item, like in the Beastman Army book. But a lot of the other terrain, I'm pretty sure, does have rules in the. Um, oh gosh, it's not magic. Uh, mysterious terrain, you know, like they have a whole section for it. Oh, cool. I haven't dug into any of that at all, so definitely... It is is pretty dense, I will say. I had it. Yeah, because I've got, like, uh, when they still sold them, but, I mean, they were already into Age of Sigmar. I've got some of the the stuff that came with um, Storms of Magic, or I'm trying to remember that that book. I actually bought it from you, Dave, the one that has the spinner on it. Um, Yeah. Yeah, the... uh, the different pieces of terrain that like essentially work as a focus or foci for like your, your magic users. And I've got like the swirling vortex one, which I've painted up to be like a fiery vortex. And then I've got the, um, I think it's like the dark throne or something like that. Um, it's like just a throne with like two gargoyles, um, on it. 
and and that's pretty cool. Actually, Emily got that for me for a Christmas present years ago. But um, yeah, I need. I th- I think you are you're in the spot where I want to be, where I want to have a painted army, and then I want to focus in on terrain because I think I think the next the the hobby evolution is focusing in on terrain and boards and things like that. It definitely makes the like the game experience. I think um, just like more thematic, and yeah. a, little, a little more cinematic. Um, but I love the fact that you can put a piece of terrain on the table and it's got some bespoke rules. I think that's um, I think it's really cool. Whether you choose to use them or not, you know, what I mean, like whatever, it's cool. Yeah, I'm gonna have to look up mine now. You know, I know, right? But uh, but yeah, that's that's what's uh, on the table with the dark elves. Hopefully, everything will be coming back home soon, ish. Yeah, yeah. Cool. No, excited to see it all. Cause you're cause it's it's gonna be interesting to see you playing uh, dark more dark elves and less Noln. And you know, I still need to fight both of those armies, but. Well, I have been doing a lot more of uh, the Dark Elves. Just felt like I needed to uh, get them on the table and get a few more games in. But uh, but what a perfect segue, Pat, to our first segment, which is... Uh, what are we calling this segment? Uh, I don't know. I believe our workshop title was Shit We Like. Yeah, shit we like. Very good. That is what we will call it until we come up with a better name. So if you guys didn't listen to the first podcast we did, this is where Pat, Jason, and I pick uh, a model or a unit that we are just really loving um, playing, uh, building a list around, or you know, just thinking about how to use and, and talk about it and give you guys some, some tips and maybe some tricks, maybe some thoughts on how to get it into your mashup for, uh, for the games that you hopefully will be playing. So I don't know, Pat, you want to give us uh, you want to kick us off here with what, uh, what you're talking about this, this episode? Oh yeah, sure. Um, so I'm not necessarily talking about a specific unit. I'm more talking about a amount. I'm talking about an add-on to your to your units. Um, in this case, I'm talking about the Royal Hippogriff, and so that's it's a mount, and it's ridiculously amazing. You can get Hippogriff Knights in this edition, um, but their mount alone is worth it. Um, my lord is on a Hippogriff. I have a unit of Hippogriff knights and it's really because of the mounts um you know you've got your it has four wounds four attacks um it's strength five and it has so many awesome upgrades that you can apply to it that that make it even more deadly in combat never mind the fact that it has you know it uh it never mind the fact that it, it has a knight on the on the back of it so you can upgrade it with shredding talons which gives them armor piercing you can give them a serrated maw which gives them multi-wound for their attacks multi-wound two for their attacks excuse me uh swooping strike 
which gives them devastating charge and a strength bonus of one when charging. And then blood rage, which gives them frenzy and hatred. I mean, that alone, I wish I could just take a unit of hippogriffs, never mind the knights with lances on the back, which is devastating enough. Um, but I'm pretty sure in my last game against Jason, like none of the night, like I took my unit of hippogriff knights with my Lord and ran it up the field and went straight into his big block of, of, uh, infernal guard, I think is what it was. And he'll have to correct me, but like none of the knights hit, but all of the hippogriffs hit. And I mean, that's. That's what you get with Bretonians for some reason. Always your mounts hit better than your knights. But they all hit, and I'm pretty sure they took out, I want to say, like half the unit before he swung back. Oh, yeah. It was uh, pretty gross. You literally mulched half of the unit. Uh, was 13 out of 26. Yeah. I mean, they, they paid for themselves. Um I, I just think the idea of like and so the the upgrades you give only apply to like when you're when it's a lord on a hippogriff it's not to the not to like the hippogriff knight unit but still that that's pretty fantastic in my mind so I mean these are going to be your they can mulch through infantry they can probably tie up a a a lord or a big unit um you know they're, they're super versatile so yeah that that's my unit of the of the of the week my my shit i really like so pat you're um <clears throat> you said you had three of these on your table after you finish your lord mm -hmm. so you're gonna are you gonna do more than that or you think the three is gonna be enough are they a, a special or are they a rare so they're rare um and the only reason I don't want to take more is because I feel like, like three alone with like a standard is 293 points or like almost 300 points. And th that's a lot for three units. Granted, they're worth it, but at the same time, like three's enough. So that's your, in this case, it's your musician your chevalier which is essentially like the the sergeant or the head of the unit and then your standard bearer um you give a magic standard oh yeah no um in this case i'm giving them at least my new list it's the uh standard of arcane warding so we can get some magic resist against jason's shenanigans or anyone else's <laughs> shenanigans um i know i feel like they're a really nasty unit and like I have another flying unit, which in this case is Pegasus Knights. And so in tandem, like, I can have the Hippogriffs charge in, the Pegasus come from the side, or the Pegasus can go around and hunt war machines. Um, just having a unit with the ability to fly just makes it so much more versatile on the, on the table. Yeah, it, it definitely is. Um, it's nice very versatile unit like you said you can use them to hunt down war machines or you know attack flanks potentially you know take out some softer units really make fast cap think about doing the whole you know bait and 
um, run tactics. So, so yeah, man, that'll be awesome. It's really nice how much, uh, how many options I think the different lists have now in terms of being able to bring um, flying units. Because before it was like you could maybe bring one, you know, and not every list got that. But I feel like now most lists have like a decent list, you know, a decent choice of, uh, of flying units. Yeah, I mean, I feel like in Warhammer Army Project, just, just the nice split between, because most of your heavy-hitting flyers are going to be in your special or rare, and just how they've kind of nicely, evenly split everything just makes it easier. Um, you know, I can take a unit of Grail Knights and, like, two Hippogriff Knights in my in my rare slot, but then also take a full unit of Pegasus Knights, like three Pegasus Knights, in my special. So I'm not necessarily missing out on all the flying that I want to do. So do you think that these are better than Pegasus Knights? Um, I, I think so. I think they're more survivable than Pegasus Knights. Um, I'm sure other people are going to disagree. I, I mean, some people may say, oh, there are a lot of points, whereas a full unit of Pegasus with a standard is like 200 or something like that, or 215. Um, I think they. I mean, they kind of have different roles, though, don't they? Right. I mean, I, with the Pegasus Knight, I'm gonna harass your soft, soft stuff in the back. Whereas with my Hippogriffs, I'm gonna charge your big thing, and I don't care because they're Hippogriffs. Or yeah, yeah. like the Pegasus, like you're not gonna charge those into like a hard, meaty target. Right. But like the Hippogriffs can just motor through like big chunky units and end up just fine on the other side of it yeah so like i mean i'd be hunting jason's uh war machines with pegasus knights whereas i'll be focusing in on his kadai destroyer or his uh big unit of dwarves with my hippogriff knights or heck even his and i shudder to think about it his unit of of uh bull centaurs um <laughs> but again i mean a lot of a lot of the bretonian roster really relies on like your lances of knights and getting the charge off first which at least with flying units and at least with hippogriffs it's it's not going to be hard to do so yeah yeah are you so okay i like it man i like it i'm looking forward to seeing him on the table yeah yeah maybe put a lord in there and you know have a, a four-wide front going in. Brutal. That'd be a lot of fun. Awesome. Yeah. All right, man. Well, uh, Jason, what's uh, what's your choice this week? All right. So with me, I felt like uh, I could do kind of a combination favorite unit and uh, public uh, what is it? Uh, PSA for something fun that I learned recently about uh, Army Project Rules. And uh, if you guys remember, back to, uh, oh gosh, what was that little rule segment called we used to do? Like Unearthed Arcana? Yeah. Sounds about so, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're going to say yes. Okay. Um, definitely feel free to fact check me on that which would be incredibly embarrassing to be fact-checked on. But um, 
So something fun I learned as well that I thought would be helpful to share because I never would have understood it had it not been explained to me in terms that like a toddler would get. So anyhow, uh, I thought it apropos, uh, Pat picked one of his favorite mounts. So I was going to pick one of my favorite mounts. Now you might not think of, uh, you know, chaos dwarves or dwarves in general being much of a big fan of mounts, but, uh, you know, the chaos dwarves have all the fun toys that, you know, the lame vanilla dwarves don't, uh, including giant flaming bull demons and, uh, like magical, uh, magical manticore bats. Uh, it's pretty great. So the two mount choices for your, uh, lords are, uh, Great Tauruses and Lamasu. So if you have played Chaos before, I'm sure you're well acquainted with a Manticore. Um, as like that, they're kind of seen as like second tier, squishy uh, character mounts, like kind of secondary to like, you know, a top tier like a dragon or something. Um, so they're typically like strength five, toughness five, so like the Lamasu is. Uh, the difference is the Lamasu is a little less fighty, uh, but has a couple of cool benefits that a Manticore does not. So he has a couple less attacks. He doesn't get frenzy. He doesn't get killing blow. Uh, however, he is a level one sorcerer to start with. Uh, he can be, let's see, fire, death, or shadow out of the box. Uh, I normally go with Shadow because a well-placed uh, Mystifying Miasma for like a negative D3 to weapon skill uh, is a total combat changer. Uh, and it's really cheap to cast. It's like a 5 plus. Uh, that's always super helpful. Uh, he also has one of the most fun little rule sets in the game. And as far as I know, it's completely unique to the Lamasu. So uh, it's called uh, Sorceress Miasma. So he has Magic Resistance 3, which is just terrific, because it can combo with any ward save that, you know, from any, you know, dude you put on top of it. But also, in addition to that Magic Resistance of 3, it also counts any magic weapon in base-to-base -base contact as the mundane version of that weapon, including, and this is important, the rider's weapon as well, which is hilarious. Uh, for several reasons. Uh, so when that big, scary, like, Bretonian lord with, like, a magical super lance charges you, uh, as soon as he hits base-to-base -base with that Lamasu, now his lance is mundane. Now, admittedly, it's still going to hurt, uh, especially uh, if it gets a killing blow-off, but, like, it doesn't matter if it's a 10-point biting blade or a gosh, whatever rune fangs are now, like 75 points. It doesn't matter if it's Archaeon. It doesn't matter if it's like Grimgore Ironhide. The second you hit base to base without Lamasu, all that character has is a mundane version of whatever his weapon is. And that's hilarious. Now, uh, the downside is typically uh, characters on Lamasu's are going to be Sorcerer Prophets. Uh, sorcerer Prophets are a little fightier than human wizards. Uh, they do have three wounds and toughness five. Uh, they're still only 
like strength four, which is a little better than humans with like, like three attacks. So not great. Um, and they don't come stock with a shield. Uh, personally, my sorcerer prophet, I'll set her up with a, let's see, a talisman of preservation, a trickster's helm, and the wand of jet, which uh, fills her magic item uh, allotment up nice and neat. Uh, so that ends up with a four plus ward save, a plus one to cast on anything, which is terrific for 20 points. Let me tell you, it pays for itself. And uh, the trickster's helm is terrific. Uh, it gives plus one to armor, uh, which combos nice with the black shard armor to give a round two plus, and also uh, forces any successful wound, like across the board, doesn't matter if it's shooting, melee, magic attack, anything. Any successful wound must be rerolled. It's spectacular. So, all of that together with the Lamasu makes for a hilariously resilient character. Now, not very fighty because the Lamasu only has two strength five attacks. The character only has three strength four attacks. Uh, however, uh, against anything short of a cannonball, uh, arrows are going to be wounding you on a six, which has to be re-rolled. Uh, so double sixes, and then it has to get through your armor and ward. Uh, kind of the same thing with like handguns. Uh, strength four, still a re-rolling five, has to get through your armor and ward. Not great odds. Uh, spells are almost a non-issue. Uh, magical resistance, and this is kind of the point I wanted to talk about, uh, one of the very friendly, helpful admins from the uh, Discord of Army Projects uh, pointed this out. Uh, it's an interaction I never would have understood if it hadn't been explained to me. Uh, one of the big points of Army Projects 9th Edition is a cap on ward and regeneration saves. So uh, older players can remember back in like 6th Edition where you would take an armor save, you would take a ward save, and then you would take a regeneration save. So you could stack all three. Uh, then I think it was the change in 7th edition. Uh, you had to pick between a ward save or a regeneration. Uh, now in 9th edition, uh, you can have all three. However, uh, ward and regeneration are both capped at 4+, plus, except under very, very rare circumstances. Now, there are a couple of magic items. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind is uh, Archaeon. He has, oh God, I always want to call it the Eye of Ed Sheeran, but I forget what the actual name of it is. I think it's the Eye of Sheeran, but it just gives him a flat three up ward save. Which, and there are a couple of other magic items like that. That's just like a flat three up ward. However, um, it's written very specifically um, magic resistance grants you, uh, improves a ward uh, based on the number in brackets. So simply, uh, starting out, if you have a 5-up ward in magic resistance 1, you get hit by, say, a fireball, you would have a 4-up ward. So magic resistance 1 plus your ward save of 5, 4. Makes perfect sense. Normally, uh, your ward save is capped at 4. Uh, however, the specific wording for that is you may not combine ward saves from different sources 
to exceed 4 plus. Now, the reason it was worded like this, and again, the point I never would have gotten on my own without a helpful tutorial, specifically, magic resistance is worded as an improvement to an existing save. You're not combining saves. So, if you get hit with a spell and you have a 4-up ward and also magic resistance, you can get a better than 4-up ward save against the wounds to that spell. In addition, um, the unit that has um, the spell cast on it directly gets a bonus equal uh, to dispel equal to uh, your magic resistance as well, which is super fun. So if say my sorceress has a magic missile cast at her she gets a plus five to dispel it which is going to be the negative two because she's a level three caster and the additional neg uh, plus three from having magic resistance of three uh, that magic missile is going to have to re-roll any successful wounds that it has because of the trickster's helm and then it's going to have to get through armor and that sky high boosted ward save now Again, it's very resilient, not too fighty. So there are, I think 9th edition does really, really good jobs across the board of making sure that something's not universally powerful. There are still always going to be those like rock versus paper versus lizard versus Spock situations, but it does a really, really good job of making sure nothing is universal. There are no three plus invulnerable re-rolling custodian captains here. And I think that's cool and I wanted to share. Yeah, that's uh, some nasty combos for sure. But, um... Jason, you play your Sorcerer Prophets pretty offensively, I would say. I mean, I, I think she's got some good offensive magic. I mean, she's probably not going in with the Lama suit to, you know, chop people down with her axe, but I think she's got some pretty offensive magic. Oh, yeah, she does. Uh, two of those fun things. Uh, the thing with Chaos Dwarf magic is it's really short-ranged most of the time, except for Flames of Osgor, uh, which I think is kind of a distraction card effects of a spell. Uh, not to get too deep into it, but um, like their magic missile has a maximum range of 12 inches. Now, it's a pretty nasty magic missile. Uh, it's D6 strength 6 hits, which most magic missiles are like strength 3, strength 4. Um, but like a fireball is 24 inches or 36 inches. Like that's much better, uh, range wise. Um, or, uh, what's the other, oh, uh, curse of Hushut. Uh, that was the one I was using in our game, Dave, to kind of okay. like poke at, uh, individual characters. Uh, that one's very much like the, uh, death magic, like soul stealer, or I guess that would be more like, um, what is it? Uh like Fate of Bujana, like you get a certain number. It is a uh, 2d6 wounds minus the character's toughness. And then each, whatever you have left over uh, is a four plus to wound that ignores armor. That's pretty cool. Uh, but again, 12 inch range. So you have to use that offensive magic. It's like you have to be really up in somebody's grill. 
Well, it makes sense to put her on a flyer then. Oh, yeah. Keeps her a lot more maneuverable. Yeah. Uh, but you really have to work that synergy because the um, uh, the buffing magic is only uh, like uh, Breath of Hatred is only 24 inch range. So you got to be careful that you don't put yourself outside of a range where you can't help your own units. So she, considering um, uh, my Sorceress and the Lamasu are the only casters I have in my army, I do have to be uh, pretty careful because they are doing a whole lot of work by themselves. It's always a gamble with magic, man. I mean, you can go big, but you can also get your head blown off. So, and and actually, I'd say, you know, if if the other player has brought um, an equal caster, um, it's always a bit of a you know a gamble about how many spells you're going to be able to get off. So. Um, yeah, I think I think that's awesome, man. I think you've definitely probably just blown some people's heads off. <laughs> but um, I like how the magic phase feels like much more of a back and forth. Like, um, all right, well, I'm going to let you get this spell through, but I'm going to make sure to fight you on these other two. Uh, in 8th edition, it just felt like, why even bother trying to dispel things? I know you're just going to take every dice you can stuff into one spell, and throw a whole bunch at it, at it and try to make it miscast. It feels a lot more like ninth edition really, um, it rewards like intelligent dice management and like, you know, multiple small and medium spells instead of just trying to toss a whole bunch of dice at one big giant spell. Yeah. For a lot of different reasons. It's a much more strategic phase. Um, I'm a big yeah. fan. I, I am too. I love it. I think um, if you're not bringing a magic caster, uh, you're you're probably doing it wrong. Um, you're but, missing uh, a whole phase. You're missing a whole phase. And it's a good phase too. Well, cool, man. Thank you for that uh, incredibly deep dive into Lamasu. Quote, unquote, Lamasus. No, that's awesome. That's what it's all about, man. That's why we do this. Um, so for my part, I am going to talk about the Avatar of Cain. Uh, I'm super stoked on the Avatar of Cain because, you know, I didn't think it was ever going to be a model that I could put on the table. I thought it was just going to sit on top of the Cauldron of Blood and, uh, you know, be a, be a pretty face. Um, but, you know, when I had, when I had, when I commissioned this and I had it painted, I asked, my um, my painter, I was like, just magnetize it because it also comes with the Blood Rack Medusa. And, um, you know, Games Workshop, being Games Workshop usually doesn't let you play with all the toys, but, you know, I was like, eh, maybe. I think the Blood Rack Medusa was a, a model you could take in 8th edition, but it was like, well, if I take the model, then I can't take the version of the Cauldron of Blood, um, the Blood Rack Shrine, I think it was called, uh, with the Medusa and the mirror on it. So I was like, just magnetize everything. It'll be fine, you know? Um, and lo and behold, Ninth Edition lets you play with all the toys. So I now have this awesome uh, Avatar of Cain model that I can 
put on a base, and we'll talk about bases in just a second because it's an interesting conversation Jason and I were having earlier today. Uh, but uh, but he is an absolute beast, man. So he is movement six, which is important um, because it gets you swift stride, but doesn't get you three d six. Just gets you two d six. Um, but you get to use both of those. Uh, so the break off point there is. Um, Movement seven, movement seven and above, swift stride. You can roll three d six and choose the two highest. Movement six and below, swift stride. You roll two d six, and that's that's what you got. Um, but it's still really good. And then he's weapon skill six, which is beast. Uh, zero ballistic skill because it's not something he needs to do. Uh, he's strength six, t six, five wounds, um, initiative three, five attacks. But he has um, sustained fury. So for each successful killing blow, oh, oh, and he has hatred. So just hatred everything. Just all the time, hatred hates everything. He's the avatar of Cain. Of course he does, right? Super angry. Um, so he's re-rolling all five attacks with weapon skill six. He's probably hitting five times, right? Unless you're incredibly unlucky or you're going up against something that's just, you know, Lord or above. Um, and then, you know, you have a pretty good chance of rolling a six in that mix for getting a killing blow, which is awesome. And if you get a killing blow, then you're automatically making an additional attack. So, I mean, I've, I have gotten like upwards of six, seven attacks with this guy, um, which is pretty great. He's an animated construct, uh, which gives him um, sort of unstable, but also, um, what is an animated construct to Jason? It, it, it makes you immune to psychology, right? And also stubborn. And immune to poison. Oh, yeah. Yeah, all the things, right? So he's really tough. He's um, he's a good tar pit. He's a good thing to throw up against a unit that is um, that you just need to block for a turn. So he's you know he's a good blocker because um, he can hold most units up. And he's magic resistance too. I mean I've never used that before, but now we know. Um, so he's great. I used him in. Uh, the game Jason and I played last weekend, uh, we were playtesting some rules for the um, Chaos Dwarves. We were using uh, some rules that I think probably should have always been there, but maybe got overlooked. So Jason brought some Infernals as a core choice. That game was great. Um, no issues whatsoever using the, the Infernals as a, sort of a frontline infantry choice um you know with the sorcerer prophet so it's just like witch elves being core if you take a death hag you know you sort of you pay the tax in your lord and then or your hero and then you um can bring a slightly more elite version of uh of core uh, to your list which i'm about um because it sort of i think it always was there with the chaos dwarves anyway so I had a really good time playing Jason. Um, I threw my Avatar of Cain up against his Kadai Destroyer, and they sort of went head-to-head -head for a little while. That was the showdown that I wanted to see. That was the movie that I wanted to watch. And um, 
it went, went really well for for me. I think we had whittled each other down to like a couple wounds each. Um, unstable is brutal though because um, you don't get to make a leadership test at the end of the combat phase. So for combat resolution, it's not like oh I lost by five and then I'm gonna make you know I'm gonna take a leadership check and see if I can pass and if I pass then okay I don't lose any more wounds which is, I think is sort of what it used to be maybe a long time ago. Now it's just okay, uh, I lost combat res by five. I just lose five wounds. Anything that's unstable, I just lose five wounds. There's no rolling dice. <laughs> it's just bye-bye. So you have to be really careful with um, the animated constructs and the undead, anything with, an, anything with unstable, because it, it's um, this scale, the scales can tip very quickly, um, against you so, so you're really you're playing a, you're, you're sort of playing a risk reward game where you're going in hard you're going to try to do a lot of wounds to make up for that combat res you know um but if the unit you're going up against has a lot of static combat resolution um maybe a magic banner or something like that uh you got to be you got to be real careful with these guys but I had a really good time playing him against Jason. Then I played him again in another game um, later that same night against some guys, and he did great. And then I played him against Jared, and he was a lot of fun against Jared as well. Um, so I've been having a really good time with this guy. Uh, I put him on a 40 mil base, but here's where things get a little wonky. Um, so... Jason plays his Gatai Kadai Destroyer on Jason. What what kind of base do you play him on? So it's the uh, old school Games Workshop like massive monster base. Uh, it's one hundred by one fifty. Yeah, absolutely the biggest base you can get. Uh, it's a huge model, and so it looks awesome on it. Um, but it is the biggest base you can get: fifty by hundred millimeters. So fifty frontage, hundred. 100 millimeters going back down the, the side. Well, that's a uh, chariot base. Oh, this is even bigger than that? Oh, yeah. Um, a monster, uh, the biggest monster base is 100 wide, 150 deep. Oh, yeah, my bad. I was reading the wrong thing. Yeah, so actually I've been playing the Avatar wrong if I'm playing him on a 40 by 40. He needs to be on a minimum 50 by 50 because um, he is a monster. Uh, so the minimum base side for monsters are 50 by 50, and then the maximum are what is what Jason plays the Kadayan, which is 100 by 150. And there's nothing that says that one thing is the other. So there's no points value that says if it's you know 100 points and below, it should be on a 50 by 50. If it's 300 points and above, it should be on 100. You know, if it's a black dragon should be on 100 by 150. No, it's it's literally whatever you want to put it on, um, which is wild to me. But I think it's to allow players to sort of model their characters and monsters and use a wide range of, of miniatures, right? We talked a little bit about the whole third-party miniature thing, right? Warhammer Armies Project is a very open system, 
Um, so it just sort of allows you, I think, that flexibility in um, building, you know, building your your units and your models to sort of fit with what you have. I don't know, Jason. What do you do? You want to say anything about that? Well, it's much. I remember how base size used to be a super strictly controlled thing. Like, um, you know, Games Workshop itself is normally pretty chill on a lot of stuff like that. But even they were like, okay, it has to be on the base it came on or larger, never smaller. And um, especially in uh, tournaments, uh, tournaments were really, really strict. Like, they would even go through on, like, model by model, list by list, and say, like, uh, if they were, you know, most things like, you know, human-sized infantry is on 20 millimeter, you know, chariots are on 50 by 100, but um, it's kind of like a general rule, but if ever there was, like, any contention, like, I remember for a long time, um, oh, gosh, um, like, uh, zombie dragons were one that... um, some people like insisted they should be on 50 by 50 and other people like, no, the newest kits like on a hundred by, uh, uh, 150. So that's like what all of them have to go on. And so like some tournaments would even go like, you know, unit by unit and say like, this is the base you have to have it on. This is the base this has to be on. Now ninth edition is much, much looser about it. So with every unit in the book, or every, um, not every unit in the book, every, um, unit type in the book. So like, um, you know, infantry, cavalry, monstrous infantry, monster, it'll give you a list of approved bases. So like, um, like Dave was just talking about with monsters, it gives you a list of four base sizes. Um, it says something like monsters can be on 50 by 50, uh, 50 by 75, 50 by hundred or 100 by 150. Uh, however, uh, as I found out, the more time I've spent like with folks that actually play and um, in the Discord, it's not a super hard rule. Uh, a lot of people will make intermediate base sizes that just kind of make sense. Um, a lot, especially with some of the armies that are uh, kind of fan made, like Astalia and Cathay um, or Talia. Uh, there's some units in there that have like 30 millimeter squares, which is, you know, um, not a size uh, Games Workshop has ever made for uh, fantasy. Or um, there are, I forget which monster it is, but it has like a 75 millimeter square base. You know, so, and some folks just like want to mount their monsters on something that, you know, a base size that just looks better for that where like you know 100 by you know 50 may look like it just sitting out in the middle of nowhere but like maybe a 75 by 75 would you know make more coherent sense so it's not a super hard rule it's kind of like a politely agreed upon norm i guess yeah and i would say the community right now is is all a bunch of pretty chill you know people who are just looking to you know, throw some dice and have a good time. There's no tournament scene, right? You can't, you can't bring your your, um, you know, tournament whack army to uh, a ninth edition tournament. And, like, you know, try to take take names. 
Uh, so I think that's cool. I think it sort of dials things down a little bit. And I, I know that I've talked to some folks um, in one of the, the groups that we play with. And, you know, when I was thinking about maybe doing like a, a vampire counts army using the cursed city models or the soul blight um, models, cause they're gorgeous. Those skeletons, the grave guard do not, they would just not fit on 20 millimeter bases. They it would, they'd look goofy. Um, and so you would have to put them, I think, on a minimum of 25 mil bases. And then, you know, you can you can have arguments about, right? Like, oh, well, if I if I run five five wide using 25 mil bases, I'm just not going to hit as hard as somebody running six wide 20 mil bases, right? Which is, I think it's fair. It's same frontage, but like, I mean, almost the same frontage by five millimeters, but like, it's fair. And so I think in the, in the, groups that I've played with, they're like, look, man, if you want to put your new models on 25 mil bases, you could just count them as like six, right? So you just, instead of having six wide on 20 mil bases, you got five wide, but you just count them as six, right? So it's like, whatever, man, it's not so, but that's homebrew stuff. That's house rules. You guys definitely can play however you want because, it is very much a community thing. So, uh, that is all th- all we've got for the first segment, guys. Unless you guys, Jason, Patrick, you guys want to jump in? Any alibis? No, mm-hmm. that is uh, pretty comprehensive, I think. Yeah. All right, awesome. We we will be right back with the second part of Perils and Portents. See you guys in a second. guys welcome back uh so this is the second segment of our uh little podcast and this this week we are going to be wrapping up um our uh i guess our review and our thoughts on iron company by chris rate last week we introduced it and we talked a little bit about it um and we gave it sort of a I guess we gave it a scale. We gave it a review. Um, do you guys want to revisit that now? Jason, you finished reading it, so did you uh, change your thoughts on any of that? Oh, it's um, it's pretty spectacular. So I was telling you earlier, I actually started out uh, just briefly scribbling down every terrific cliche uh, Chris Rate used, and I realized very... S- very early on that it was just going to take up way too much space. (laughs) So I just started taking down every cliche that was like from an eighties action movie. 
and I still ended up with a ton, and it was terrific. Perfect. Definitely, like, bare minimum of eight hammers of enjoyment factor. All right, Jason has upped his score on the Sigmar scale uh, to eight out of ten hammers. So, um, Pat, are you going to keep your score? Yeah, so I think I gave it, I want to say a seven. Um, you know, so I've I already read Iron Company, and so I, I did essentially a quick read-through um, the other night. And honestly, like Jason, like I forgot just how many like perfect like 80 action movie or, you know, just cliches that were in it. Um, but But it's a fantastic book. And I would totally give it an eight. I, th- I think it deserves one more point. Um, I think, granted, you'd be hard-pressed to find a book that's a full 10, except for uh, some of the Horace Heresy stuff. But, again. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm going to I'm gonna keep my score at a solid, uh, I think, a seven. Because I think, you know, we talked about it, and we said 10 was like a Dan Abnett classic, so like Riders of the Dead or Horus Rising, something that just totally defines the genre. And, uh, well, we don't need one. Yeah, we don't have to talk about that. Right. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah. Um, all right. Well, Jason, you definitely took the most notes. So uh, you, you want to lead us off on this segment? Oh, sure. I'd be happy to. So, you know, I won't go through, like, a full synopsis, but I would definitely like to hit some of the uh, terrific high points. Um, and just some of the things I think make this really unique as a novel. And again, when I say it includes a lot of cliches, do not under any circumstances take that as it not being enjoyable, because it definitely is. It just takes some of the things that we have seen, like in every Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jean-Claude Van Damme, like, action movie and brought them pretty seamlessly like into a fantasy novel which is something if you just led with i would never believe in a million years but it kind of works everything from like magnus not not getting along with authority and you know right because like but it's not it it's like so many of those classic tropes like just take magnus as a character So not only is he a former prodigy with a famous father who was renowned, like, throughout the uh, empire, Uh, he is now an alcoholic uh, veteran who has been discharged, and he is tapped, uh, however unlikely, Uh, He's been tapped for his expertise. He's been given one last chance uh, to come back and, you know, make a name for himself again so he doesn't, you know, his legacy doesn't end in infamy. And so he's tapped for this one last job, and he has to round up, you know, folks from his old team who, uh, like uh, Hildebrandt, uh, who used to be one of his artillery captains, is now in a better place. And, 
Now he, uh, Hildebrandt is married and has kids and a stable life when Magnus, you know, stumbles back into his life and tells him, we just got to do this one last job. And like, even right there is like just a dozen, like right in a row. It's true. It's true. I, I will say this though. I mean, it's what makes it relatable, right? I mean, there's a reason cliches are... And tropes are, are they're so often used, right? So it's because, like, people can relate to that. You know, the alcoholic veteran who's, like, sitting in a bar somewhere waiting for somebody to come on, you know, offer them a, a gig with a, a private military company, right? I mean, that's like, I mean, I, I can relate to that story, man. So uh, I, I think it's, it's well, but it's well done, though. It's not... Um, so it's 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 a little tongue in cheek, which is good, but it's also I think really nuanced and really well done, so that you can, it kind of it kind of is like, like we talked about last time. Like I've seen this movie and I like this movie, um, so you're already there. You like okay, I, I I got it. And then so I think that's what makes Chris some of Chris Rate's novels just really fun to read, is because you kind of get the 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 plot but then it's the little details right the nuances right so he's magnus is like living in this uh what was like who is like a blacksmith's house right yeah it's the top of a blacksmith's yeah he's living in the attic over a blacksmith's house (laughs) right who's the blacksmith's like banging his maid um, and like everyone knows it and, and, and that's probably another, <laughs> another trope, right? So it's the, right. the bitter old housewife, the fish wife, the fish maid, right? Who's up there making Magnus some soup because Magnus hasn't eaten in like, you know, three days been. Cause he only know. has a liquid diet. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's so good, man. I love it so much. Well, actually Dave, um, you actually mentioned something, the small details that I really wanted to touch on that I absolutely love about Chris Rate's writing, especially in this novel. So I think it's a really hard line to walk to for an author to include enough details to make the world seem, you know, like unique and lived in. Like, you know, it's not just a bunch of talking heads making dialogue but also to not have so many that it feels like it bogs down the story and we're just spending pages, you know, with the author describing everything that's going on around him. And I think Chris Rate does an excellent job at that. And I wanted to point out exactly where that jumped out at me. And another kind of point that makes this really unique. So one of the things about about this novel that I think was done really well is it's not just an action movie. I think there are actually some decent elements of almost like a suspenseful thriller as well, because as this army is getting put together, it's getting put together specifically to go um, collect tax levies from an uh, kind of like this rogue noblewoman who has this... Um, Almost like it immediately made me think of like crazy Elsa from Frozen, right? Because she's got like this citadel up in these like frozen mountains. Um, But she hasn't been paying her taxes. And like she can, you know, sit up there and like accumulate all the armies and goods and hurl insults at everybody she wants. But 
if she doesn't pay her taxes, that's, that's when shit hits the fan, right? So the first army they send up after her is just, it just disappears without a trace. And going up there, like as this new army gets assembled, there are almost these elements of like, you know, like a mystery thriller to it. Like, because they don't know what happened to the other army. Because uh, like no reports ever got back. It just disappeared. And when they finally, tiny spoiler, do find it, uh, they're, you know, they're just have been slaughtered in an open field. And there are basically no bits of evidence from the, you know, dead enemies, which is pretty, pretty unsettling, right? It's like, you know, an entire friendly army looks like it's just been massacred and it doesn't look like they've done any damage in return. But not only that, some of the small details that really could have bogged down the story don't. Uh, like Chris Rate makes this uh, small aside of Magnus, you know, sending some of his, you know, friends out to poke around to see if they can find anything of the enemy. And the one thing they find, Magnus recognizes as uh, a serpentine, which is apparently, I didn't know this, fun fact I learned, uh, is that little metal thing on a the side of a flintlock firearm that holds the match cord so when you pull the trigger the serpentine moves forward and sticks the match cord in the flash pan and ignites the powder uh he recognizes it as a serpentine but also he's like this is not a serpentine i've ever seen it's like not and this is a dude who like knows firearms like the back of his hand right like he can just like see a rifle and be like oh yeah that's like a uh Hockland, you know, 1478 model that was like, you know, turned out of the factory. Uh, that, that was a bad year. You know, they had like a, you know, flaw in the ironworks that year. Like, this is that kind of dude, right? I mean, I think he literally says something like that. He's like, oh, they don't make them like that anymore, you know? Yeah, like, exactly. Uh, you can't find an original Hawkland anymore. Yeah, people don't know how to do that. <laughs> you know, Aren't his, like, yeah. pistols, like, legendary and he's already lost one? I think that's part of the story, right? Yeah, there are uh, three Ironblood pistols, apparently, in existence. Uh, he has one. One was lost, and then there's this legend that apparently a uh, witch hunter somewhere in the uh, empire has the other one. But, um, so when he finds the serpentine, he takes it to uh, uh, um, Thorgad, the uh, dwarf that kind of joins up with the uh, artillery train under mysterious circumstances. Uh, another terrific 80s action movie trope, uh, the mysterious expert. Um, but, uh, so... Thorgad recognizes it, and he's like, oh, this is dwarf mate. Like, no, see, a human smith couldn't make this angle of serpentine. It's like, you know, beyond dumb human hands. They couldn't figure out how to even manufacture this angle of metal. And I think that's, like, an awesome detail. It's like Chris Rate could have just said, like, oh, this is, you know, dwarven made. But he's like, no, like, goofy human smiths can't even figure out how to make a serpentine at this angle. That's pretty neat to me. Yeah, I, I agree. I think um, it's a it's a great story all the way, you know, through hauling the uh, like the 12 cannons, right? The different types of uh, of heavy artillery, which some of them, 
like i don't know i don't think one of them was named like burgatrude or something I, i'm totally making that up but what like they have names right and they're the long the long range heavy artillery the long range cannons um, one like a uh, murderous matilda I think. yeah 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 and so describing how the um the company the iron company has to haul these things up through a narrow mountain pass uh, I mean, that was just, I mean, it's, that's just sent chills down my spine, man. It was just t- treacherous. Like you could, like you could feel like you were there, you know, it was raining and it was cold and the horses were exhausted and they were hauling these things up on like, you know, rusty axles and you're like, oh man, so, something's going to go wrong. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I thought it was really, really well done, uh, everything putting everything together magnus's role as more than just a uh you know an an engineer a master engineer in charge of uh in charge of the artillery company you know magnus sort of i mean he essentially saves this army from destruction even though he you know he kind of begrudgingly does it he's he's uh he still is the one who kind of keeps them ultimately from from getting blown up. So going back to when you were talking about the different uh, types of guns, like they essentially roll out and like get to the fortress with almost every type of armament that I think is listed in like at least the Empire Army list. Am I wrong in that, Dave? I mean, other than like a war wagon, of course. I don't. I don't think they have um, a Hellblaster. I think they've got Magnus's special thing in a crate. Right. But I, I think I, it's I interesting that they don't have a yeah. Hellblaster. Yet for some reason they decided to p- to depict a Hellblaster. Oh wait, no. On the no, front of it, they totally do. They they totally have a Hellblaster. Oh yeah. I don't want to ruin one of the reveals at the end, but uh, they definitely uh, they fire it at a thing in the final battle and it does not have much of an effect oh yeah that's right um but wait kim sorry like small aside uh that i just pat you just reminded me of Mm -hmm. uh the fortress that they are assaulting is called morgrimgar and its gatehouse is a massive obsidian wolf skull with green fire in the eyes yeah if at any point you did not think this novel is like an episode of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, may I put your doubts to rest? I'll get you, Magnus Ironblood. And he does a little bit. <laughs> yeah, no, he does. But but I appreciate the fact that with the artillery and like they're describing the battle and how certain cannons can only shoot at certain distances and like this is what this is built for this is what that's built for um you know those little pieces of detail are what what make books like this exciting that and the the tropes of course but that is a really good point one of the details i loved about just firing the cannons right is like these aren't the like comparatively super sophisticated napoleonic era ones right with like the little targeting louvers and like rifled barrels and stuff like they're firing these things with like guesswork and like wedges under the wheels 
it's it's terrific like um because like even magnus like is has been doing this all his life essentially and like even he's like no these cannons are like temperamental guesswork on a good day it's like i love that yeah yeah it, it definitely you know um illustrates jason like what, what you were talking about all the different factions within an empire um regiment right so it's, just, it's not really even an army it's like they sort of put this thing together on the fly right so they have um what so were the the knights of the iron scepter you said oh yeah the uh detachment of knights they have with them the knights yeah, of the so iron they, scepter so they get these guys to show up, right? So they have, they have this, uh, they have a general. His, his name is Scharnhorst. He's kind of a dick. Um, but, you know, like all probably good uh, empire generals, sort of kind of comes with the territory. Um, but then he just kind of pieces together this, this, uh, this, this army. He's got some knights, um, and the knights have a very specific purpose that they can do. Uh, and then he's got this, these, companies of of handgunners who ostensibly report to magnus as an engineer so that's interesting because i mean i didn't really i guess fully appreciate that the handgunners as well as the artillery would report to the engineer in terms of you know like command and control structure um and then they've got some like halberdiers and some swordsmen but they don't really get their hands dirty until the very end because they're sort of held back for the final final charge oh and then they have flagellants who just show up right <laughs> it's like yeah. oh we get, those guys oh okay nobody wants to nobody wants to get too close to those guys but uh but you know and they end up playing a very very important part in it so it's this um it's very interesting very like that's the nuance i think that makes it um really believable and uh just ex- excellently written book and uh so so when the big guns um, get uh, blown up because Scharnhorst makes a call and doesn't listen to Magnus and some other people get involved and then they lose their big guns, you know, their, their sort of options are really reduced because you just can't lay siege to a citadel, especially one with... Uh, green fire um from the eyes and really big guns on top you just can't lay siege yeah i mean unless you've got equally big guns um so they still have some little guns but they're like that's not gonna work man We, we we get too close to their big guns and it's game over so but also i mean the the general himself is very much old school and like i think you were talking about this earlier Dave, when we were when we were chatting, uh, how essentially like at some point, at one point, Magnus is just like shunned from the command structure, and like just isn't allowed in the tent. Yeah, yeah, he's not allowed to attend the briefings, or like it's not so. It, he's it's nobody tells him that there's a briefing going on, so he's over here like you know, doing maintenance on a twelve hundred pound cannon and then all of a sudden you know his buddy comes up and is like hey man you know Sharnhorse called a meeting everyone's in the tent and magnus is like 
nobody told me. And that you just got the feeling right then, like, oh, this guy's lost confidence. He's he's uh, he's uh, he's not in the inner circle anymore. Not in the circle of trust. Right. Yeah. But um, but yeah, I loved it, man. Jason, what else? What else were we talking about? I know we were talking about Crazy Lady. Yeah, I actually kind of felt uh, a little bad for her by the end of the novel. Um, so not to like you know spoil one of the little bit of twists at the end. Uh, it turns out that the uh, Countess that's uh, allegedly you know holed up amassing an army and weapons and war machines and not paying her taxes isn't exactly doing it of her own free will just to be a jerk you know uh there are extenuating uh circumstances yeah yeah it's very interesting how they you know how how chris ray develops that i mean because throughout the whole novel you think oh this is she's got to be some type of sorceress, you know, you know, she's probably possessed or something. And the, the two kind of villains are like, wh whose turn is it to go up there? Almost like they're afraid of, of her, right? That's what it seems like. Right. But in the end, you end up getting a, a very different story. I thought that was one of the really cool twists in the whole uh, the whole novel and and it did it actually kind of yeah pulled on your uh, pulled on your sympathies a little bit yeah I mean it's a it's a it's a sad ending but I think still like the last paragraph of the book is completely and utterly action movie you know um, obviously you know good quote-unquote prevails but it's you know magnus looking into the sunset kind of thing um i i do find it interesting though when we and again i don't know how much spoiler stuff we want to talk about and we may we may talk about it in the next episode even um just to get the listeners or let the listeners uh catch up but the interaction with the dwarf I think is really interesting, especially at the end of the book, because you get you get a better look into dwarven culture, kind of in in a in a way around around like grudges and things like that. So, yeah, yeah, this is very much the dwarven. The, these are the these are the dwarves of um, these are the dwarves of Lord of the Rings, right? Like they don't they don't come out from underneath the mountain much anymore. You might find one or two of them hanging out in, you know, Middenheim or, um, Nuln, you know, but this, this, this dwarf is, you know, he's on his own, on a quest, on a, on a grudge. And, uh, yeah. So they're, they're definitely not, uh, a common site, but they're also not like unheard of. So I thought it was interesting. Yeah. Um, and then one thing I wanted to bring up and Dave, you may be able to shed more light on this, but I guess Magnus's design 
Are we allowed to talk about that? Should we talk about that? What, it's called a what? A, bl- a bleach? A blightschreiben? A blightschreiben? Blightschreiben. There we go. Blood rider in German. Yeah. I would love to know, like the thing is, is they don't really describe it well, and like, I honestly wonder like what's the difference between that and a base steam tank because I know there's different types of steam tanks. You have some that are there. There are like what seven or eight left in the world, and I think like there's a couple that were made to essentially be giant battering rams. Then one has like a Hellshrieker rocket platform on it um another one has a a parapet and stuff so that you can have hand gunners on top of it and then you have the the kind of normal i think they call it like the crusader model or something like that i'm trying to remember conqueror model where where it's the normal one that i think everybody's used to as far as like from a model perspective of it's got the the cannon in the front and then it's got like it has like a top hatch with a potential um handgunner situation on there but it, it's got the prow and everything it's the usual games workshop model so i don't know if you've done any deep diving into that so i went back through and read over a couple of the chapters again mm-hmm. i think the deal is supposed to be uh that the blue is like a smaller more mass producible version which would make sense yeah. I mean, it also wasn't finished, right? Like, like, yeah. It, yeah I well, think Mag- one of them Magnus wasn't finished. Wasn't. <laughs> yeah. But let, let's be honest here. Um, and now uh, it is extra not finished. Yeah. yeah. Um. But no, I really hope all the listeners do go and pick up this book. I mean, I'm pretty sure I bought it a couple years ago. Either it was either at Barnes and Noble or was at Warhammer itself. For some reason, it keeps on coming back up in the Black Library's Reader Choice winners. I don't know if you guys have noticed that. I feel like Jason, you you were talking about that how it just gets revoted up every once in a while and they just re-release it. Um, but it's still it's terrific. I mean, buy it hard copy, buy it digital. It's still a fantastic book. Yeah, check it out. You will not be mad at the time you put into it. Most definitely not. All right, guys. Well, I think that'll probably do us for this um, episode. And I didn't know if you guys wanted to do the thing we talked about, the uh, like the epilogue thing. If you guys had anything ready to go for that, if not, we can definitely come back next next time and and do it. Um, maybe we do it next time. Okay. Just so we have something written up and we'll, we'll do that next time. And then we'll do the, cause I guess, uh, next episode we'll be going into a new book. Yeah. Into night Aaron. Yeah. That's into, right. There we go. Yeah. Into my choice, ladies and gentlemen, uh, night errant, which is part of the, uh, Knights of Britonia series, which, Spoiler, go get your book now. Um, you can find it on Kindle, on Black Library, wherever you look for books. Um, yeah. So I guess we uh, just go into plugs then. All right. 
Pat, what you got? I don't have anything other than, hey, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we're, we're part of the Remembrancers Retreat. And uh, go check out the main cast. Go check out our our website. Um, I think it's, uh, isn't it rva30k.com? Is that right, Dave? It's rr30k.com. Excuse me, rr30k.com. Um, you know, Dave has some pretty awesome articles up there already. Um, I know Jason and I are going to start working on some for our armies too. So just keep your keep your eyes posted. And also, I'll I'll definitely plug our our Patreon. And I want to thank all of our our patrons uh, for you know helping us out and making this possible. And uh, if you want to help us out a little bit uh definitely listen to us but also maybe considering uh becoming a patreon member you get access to episodes early and i think we send out mer- merch kind of quarterly dave i want to say ah uh, you'd have to talk to jesse yeah but but know. regardless we we uh have merch and things like that and discounts and stuff like that and we've got a uh, discord channel as well where you can talk to the cast and bounce ideas off of us and ask us questions and uh yeah how about you jason what do you got oh not a whole lot um i am content ah yeah me too i think you got it all pat oh well there you go (laughs) (laughs) uh well uh thank you all again for listening to another fantastic episode of uh Carol's importance. And uh, we'll see you guys later. Bye. Bye, guys. See you guys.